May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So, a reading from the Apocrypha. Who can tell me anything about the Apocrypha? Anything at all? But blank? So, for about the first 1400, 1500 years, the books of the Apocrypha were included in the Bible, and still are, if you're a Roman Catholic or an Orthodox. But then along came the Protestant reformers. And, well, there was a problem with the books of the Apocrypha. Can anyone guess what that problem was? Might seem a little silly to us, or it might seem like a major thing to us. Who knows? They weren't written in Hebrew. They were written in Greek. So all the other books of the Old Testament were written in Hebrew. And the Protestant reformers went, Oh, I don't know. They're not written in Hebrew. Uh, do we treat them like Bible? Maybe. Are they scripture? And then they went, no. And they cut them. So all our Bibles, of course, are printed by Protestants. So you won't find the books of the Apocrypha in most of our Bibles because they hold the power. They run the printing presses. But the Anglicans, being good people of the middle way, the Via Media, said, well, we won't call them scripture, but they're still useful for the edification of the soul. So we'll put them in there, but in their own little section at the back. So we have them in our lectionary. And... They're in that Bible, but they're not in the Pew Bibles. So that's why we have the Apocrypha. Roman Catholics, Orthodox, those books are part of the Bible. Protestants, they're not, and we kind of hold the middle line as per usual. And there's some great books in there. If you want to know about the Maccabean revolt against the Seleucids, it's all in there, in all its gory details. So, quite brutal. Kind of leads us into today's theme of peace. So last week we had hope, and I gave you some homework, and some of you may have even done it. So I left you with some questions. Questions about, well, invited you to pray with these questions. Questions like, how has your hope in God changed over your life? In what ways might you be invited to reform your life this Advent as we prepare for Christ's coming? And what new ways might you be invited to live out hope? And how are you being changed by God's love, by God's hope? And this week, as I said, when we lit the second candle, the theme is peace. Peace, which seems quite far off. We've had the, another climate change conference convene in Paris, and this time there's great hope. But we'll wait and see. While what some regard as the first climate change war continues to rage in Syria. There are some people that say that war began because of climate change which killed off the crops in the food basket of Syria which used to feed not only Syria but other parts of the Middle East and it all dried up. This week we saw Britain agree to join the bombing raids two months after saying those bombing raids were just creating more radicals. So they've changed their minds. Fighting and killing continues in parts of Africa. And there was another mass shooting in America. In the face of all that, it's hard to think about peace. What is peace, this Advent? 
And to help us think about peace, we will offer today's Gospel reading from Luke, which some commentators, a number of commentators, suggest is quite lightweight, really, isn't it? They say, well, all you get is a little bit of history, who was ruling where, and then a quote from Isaiah, and that's it. And one of the commentators, I went, come on, lectionary writers, what are us preachers supposed to do with this? Give us a bit more, for goodness sake. But there are other commentary writers that say, well, why did Luke write that right at the beginning of his gospel? Was he just trying to tell some history, or was there something more going on with his list of who were the rulers? So I want to explore that for a moment. I've recently read a book about St. Paul. The basic understanding of the writer is that Paul was a radical for whom the church and the state really struggled to know what to do with. And uh, I hope to do a series on Paul maybe next year. So we'll explore Paul the radical, not the Paul the social conservative that we usually paint him to be. Um, But one of the things this author talks about is that Paul keeps using titles that were normally reserved for the emperor and applying them to Jesus. Titles that we're really familiar with, like Lord, or Son of God, or Saviour of the World, which we all think are great religious terms and come out of the Bible. Paul, this writer, is saying, actually, they were all descriptions of the Emperor. They were all terms reserved for the Emperor. So how on earth did the Emperor end up with all of those titles? Well, the first emperor is Augustus, nephew of Julius Caesar. And he became emperor because he defeated all the other generals who also wanted to be ruler of Rome. So there had been, after Julius Caesar's death, basically a civil war within the Roman Empire. The Senate was torn, the Republic was failing, and these generals were vying for position. And what Augustus managed to do was to defeat all the other generals and had himself installed as emperor, which I read yesterday actually doesn't mean king. They were very careful never to be called kings until about the 300s. Constantine was one of the first ones who wanted to be a king, the Christian or so-called Christian. But all the others were just the kind of leader of the Senate, of the Republic. So they were still kind of holding to the Republic idea. And what he did was he restored peace and stability across the empire so that commerce could once again flourish. So for many people, Augustus, the emperor, was saviour of the world. Their known world was falling apart. He was the one who restored peace. Now when we think of Roman, Roman history and when we think of Roman peace, we have quite a nice idea about it, don't we? I remember being talked about, talked about the Pax Romana and how important it was. And what we tend to forget is how Rome maintained its peace. We should know how Rome maintains its peace. There's the symbol of it right behind us. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were nailed to one of those to maintain Rome's peace as a clear sign that If you do not obey our way, this is where you'll end up. And millions upon millions of people died so that Rome's peace 
could be maintained. We remember the good things about Rome's peace. We don't remember how it was maintained. Now, Son of God, that's an interesting title, isn't it? Because we seem to think that there's a massive gulf between the human and the divine. And only Jesus crossed that. But actually, in the Greco-Roman world, gods became humans, and humans became gods, and gods had it off with humans and had children all the time. And if you were a notable human, achieved greatness, well then clearly you were probably brought up into the pantheon of gods. This divide was pretty paper, well not even paper thin, wafer thin, less. It wasn't something that kind of would have boggled people's minds. And when you were the general and the nephew of the great general Julius Caesar, who beat all the other generals and restored peace, Roman peace, but peace, to the Roman world, then there wasn't a hard thing to imagine that actually you were a god. That the gods had said, you are a notable person, we welcome you amongst us, and you can now be a god amongst men. And in fact, the emperor cult was a really important way that the emperor maintained power. From Augustus on, they all had temples built to their honour, people were to sacrifice to them. And as this book says, one of the things that would have shocked Paul is the closer to Rome he got, the stronger that cult was. The longer that people had been under Roman rule, the stronger this cult was. For somebody who had lived on the edges of the empire, for somebody who was a Jew, this was a shocking thing. So what is Paul doing by saying, by using all of these titles that are reserved for the emperor and applying them to Jesus? Well, he's saying that real peace and real hope is not to be found in the emperor. This is not the way of salvation. The emperor is not the saviour of the world. If you want real peace, if you want real hope, if you want to know who is the true saviour of the world and what the way that the world will be saved is, it isn't through Rome. It will not be through the might of Roman military enforcement. It will be through the way of Jesus. And so when we think about that, when we go to read the Gospels, who do the same, the Gospel writers do the same thing. And here's a great example. Luke starts... During the reign of the emperor Tiberius, he is right at the top of the feeding chain. And every other person listed in that list we heard this morning has their, has their little area where they rule because Tiberius said, you can rule there. Even the high priests, the emperor chose them. You may rule. And when the emperor said... Ah, I've had enough. I don't want you to rule anymore. That basically meant they were out. And so the Herod we hear about there, he got offside with the emperor and ended up living in Gaul for the rest of his life. The rest of his life not ruling anywhere. Because the emperor said, I don't want you there anymore. I would give your area to someone else. The emperor was all important. And everyone else in that feeding chain was there because the emperor said they could be there. 
Now, one of the things that we think about empires, we talk about the Roman Empire in glowing terms, we talk about the British Empire in glowing terms, is one of the things about empire is empires exist so that the people in the middle do really well, that the wealth of the world gets transported from the edges to the middle. And we like to colour that with, well, they transported civilizations. We talk about the Romans transporting civilization and the British transporting civilization. But actually, that was just a nice gloss to disguise the fact that actually what was really going on was that the people in the middle were doing really well and the people on the edges were paying the price for the people in the middle doing really well. And so the people that Luke lists are the people that are doing really well. They are the ones at the centre. And they are doing well because the Emperor Tiberius says they can do well. And when the Emperor says you will do less well, then they do less well. And then John, then Luke contrasts that with the way of Jesus, starting with John. And so people are saying, some commentators are saying, this is a deliberate thing. This is not just saying, this is a piece of history, this is what happened at this time. This is a contrast of the way of Rome to the way of God. Put side by side, so the readers could see, way of Rome built on military force, built on crucifixions, built, built on the deaths of millions, built on the impoverishment of vast areas to pay for Rome, as opposed to the way of God. And that way needs a radical mind shift. So we then get to what actually is the prophecy from Isaiah. Now, almost 30 years ago, Bonnie nearly divorced me because I had this crazy book uh, which gave bike tours around... uh, Well, we were on a bike trip from Auckland to Wellington via the East Coast... And most days we stuck to the main roads. But when we were in Napier, the bike book said a much better route than going down the state highway is to go out to Havelock North and down the middle road, which sounded really idyllic and beautiful, so we did that. And what we discovered was that main roads go through hills and have shade and shops and all kinds of cool things like that. And all the roads off to either side don't go through hills, They go over every single little lump. And there's no shade. And there's no shops, because no one's stupid enough to drive up and down those roads too much, certainly not on bikes. And so many hours later, we end up in Waipokoro. And the people who had been camping next to us in Napier were already there, and they were still in bed when we left, and their tents were up. And they said, oh, no, the road wasn't very busy. It was quite a nice ride. So I was Bonnie wasn't that keen on talking to me for quite a long time. And we didn't actually deviate from the main road again for the rest of that bike ride. The kind of imagery we get in Isaiah is like that. It has two kind of elements to it. The first is that the way of the empires, which seems much more straightforward, is the easy road. And the way of God is the little roads off to the side, which go up and down every hillock, every little lump. It's amazing how hilly Hawke's Bay is. I mean, you think it's flat. I can assure you that it is not. The other thing is that we actually don't see the amount of work it takes to build those roads that goes through the hills. They take a long time. 
Those hills have to be moved out of the way. Bridges have to be built. It's massive, massive work. Just even on that Tauranga Eastern Linkway, I mean, that took years. And you'd think, well, that's pretty straightforward. It's already flat. They just have to build a couple of bridges and we're in. But it took years by the time they drained the swamps and put the road in. That's the kind of work that needs to go on in us if we are to go God's way. Because the truth is, the way of the empires is much easier. And it holds us. The reality is, for the first 300 years, maybe less actually, when you became a Christian, you left the army. Because the way of the Roman army was not the way of God. But soon after Constantine, the way of God became colonised by the empire. The empire became the way that God maintained peace on earth. Right through to today. If you look at the rhetoric from bishops and clergy through the First World War, we were were supporting the British Empire because that was the way of God and God would bring peace through that war. And Lutheran pastors were doing exactly the same thing in Germany. And very few people were actually standing up and saying, actually, what is this war about? In fact, those ones were imprisoned. And some of them were taken to the front line. And one of them was actually put up on a cross on the British side. On the front line. So, we keep being colonised. We keep thinking that actually the way of the world is the way that peace will be brought. But Luke and Paul and the other gospel writers were clear that actually that wasn't the way. The way of peace is the way of God. And what is the way of God? It is through mercy. It's through generosity. It is through loving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and loving our neighbour as ourself. In fact, some people say loving the Lord Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind by loving our neighbour as ourself. That's the way of peace. That is the only way peace will ever be brought. But that demands a lot of us. So this week in Advent, I invite you to take some time and to think about the way of peace. And I would suggest that in the pew sheet I talk about sin, and I would say that one of the greatest sins is when we give in to the way of the world, the way of the empire. And that what one of the things that John was getting people to let go of was to let go of their reliance on the, on the force of arms to bring about peace. Was getting people to think about that the current social structures were actually causing more conflict and we had nothing to do with the way of God. And then until people let go of that, until people were baptised and started to live a new way, that hope and peace would not come in the world. And so I invite you this week during Advent to take some time to stop and to pray about what are the false ways of seeing hope and peace, the sinful ways. What are the ways that you currently see that you are being invited to be untangled from? As a church and as a country, 
What sins are we also being untangled from? And finally, what is peace for you this Advent as we wait for the coming of peace, God's peace?